there are some temptations that uh, simply aren't appealing to me. That's not a statement of arrogance or of pride. There are just some sins that I, I'm never tempted to give into. And chances are you are the same way. Uh, illustration, not having to do with sin, but I am never tempted by grapefruit. Like, ever. Ever. It's terrible. I don't like it. I don't like the taste of it. It is not appealing. It is way too bitter. Uh, and, and don't come to me afterwards and say, you just haven't tried the right grapefruit. Like, I've tried grapefruit, and I have found it wanting. Okay, it, it is not appealing. There will never be a day in my life when I'm tempted by grapefruit. I'm not tempted by cucumbers, ever. I'm, I'm envious of those of you who are because, you know, they're great summer foods and they're good for you. Don't like them, like pickles, don't like cucumbers. Um, I don't really like tomatoes unless they're cooked in something. Um, I will eat it if it's in a fruit salad, but I won't go out of my way to have cantaloupe. These things, I don't have a taste for them. I don't, I don't want them. If you are ever trying to entice me to do something, don't use grapefruit. It won't work, like ever. Similar to taste differences, there are some sins. There are, there are even some big, what we would call big sins. You know how we kind of rank them, but big sins, huge moral failures, I've just never been that tempted by. I don't find them appealing. I don't see myself ever committing that one. Sometimes when a public figure has a very public moral failure, people will respond by saying, well, there but by the grace of God go I. And I know what we're saying. We're trying to be humble. We're trying to be honest about our own frailty and our own weaknesses. But, but honestly, there are some of those that happen and get reported, and I just don't think I would ever do them. Either because I know that's a really awful thing to do, or that really damages another person. What you did really damages somebody else. So while I get the there but the grace of God go I mentality, it's not always a one-to-one -one thing. It's not always, yeah, I could commit that particular sin. There are just some sins that aren't appealing to me. And the same is true for you. Like the, No one is tempted by every sin, right? hopefully. Like, that's pathological or something. If, if like everything in the whole world that's bad tempts you, we got issues, right? Nobody's tempted by everything. But, but there is a unique set of sins for each of us that we probably are tempted to individually. One argument against my thesis could be, well, maybe the reason you're not tempted by certain sins is because you've never given in to those sins. And I think that's partly true. I think there is some truth to, uh, to the idea of if you've never tried something, you might not be as tempted by it as someone who did try that thing a lot of people their testimony would would be something like i wish i had never done that the first time they see a direct link between 
I tried it one time, and then that led to all of these consequences. Not with every sin, that's not what I'm saying. But there, there are some people who would say, I wish I had never done it that first time. And I totally get that. Yes, there is some truth to the fact that I'm not tempted by certain things because I've never tried certain things, right? Never tried cocaine. I know that's a shocker to you. Um, Therefore, cocaine's not appealing to me in any, in any form or sense. It, it very much is to some people. Maybe part of that is because I, I've never tried it. I don't know. That, that's a piece of it. I, I do think resistance in some ways is kind of like a muscle. Like the, the more we resist something, the stronger we get at resisting it. I, I, I'll say it like this, avoiding temptation helps us build up a resistance against that sin. Like the more I say no, the better I get at saying no. The, the more I put discipline into my life around certain areas, the stronger I get in those disciplines around those areas. Like it, it really is building up a stronger resistance, like a muscle. I keep exercising it. I get stronger at it. I get better at it. That does happen. C.S. Lewis compared it to a, an, a war, a battle, and, and Lewis describes it as taking ground from the enemy. Every time I say no to temptation, I gain a little more ground on the enemy. And then the next time there's a battle, I'm in a stronger position to fight from. And so I just kind of keep gaining ground against the enemy again and again and again. All of that is true. There, there is strength that comes with resistance at the same time. I don't feel tempted in the same way towards every sin. You don't feel tempted in the same way, maybe not even at all, to certain sins. There's a specific makeup we have, like our DNA, right? Our past experiences. All of our makeup wires us towards certain weaknesses and certain strengths. It's just part of being human. But it can be helpful to know what those are. It can be extremely helpful to be honest about what those are. Not dismiss areas of weaknesses that we have or at the same time become overly focused on some areas that aren't a problem for us. There are certain sins I just don't give any mental space to because they've never been a problem for me. I don't see them being a problem for me. I don't give emotional space to those. When someone needs to talk to me as their pastor and and says, look, I'm struggling with this or struggling with this. If it's outside of the makeup of what I'm tempted by, I can sympathize with them. I will pray for them. But I don't walk away from that meeting going, oh, I better be careful because I could do that same thing. Like There, there are certain weaknesses that I have, and there are certain strengths that I have. You see, just like there are areas that I'm not tempted in, there are some big ones I am. There are sins, small and large, in the way that we think of sins. Small and large, some that might have minimal consequences, some that would have devastating consequences for my life that I know I have the potential of failing in. And some of those I've never failed in. Like some, of, some of those I've resisted the whole time, but I know I still have the capacity to fail in that area. That's a weakness for me. I need to be careful about that. I probably don't have complete clarity on all of those. 
But at 54, I am painfully aware of most of them. I am painfully aware of most of the places that I have the potential of failing. Genetic testing is an interesting uh, area of science and technology, and like all interesting areas of science and technology, comes with uh, its share of ethical concerns and potential uh, ethical uh, uh, conflicts. But it's interesting how uh, genetic testing can zero in on your particular makeup, your DNA, your chromosomal makeup, can predict here are the diseases, here are the illnesses you're most likely to face, here are the ones you're least likely to face, can help you very specifically prevent and or treat illnesses that you have based on how you're wired, how you're made up physically, what's going on in your body. Genetic science can say, we're going to zero in on this for you. Temptation is the same way, in a spiritual sense, in a negative sense. You have a particular makeup that makes you particular, particularly susceptible to a set of sins. Not every sin, but a set of sins, and it would be wise if you spent some time trying to figure that out. I think if you're over the age of about 25, all you have to do is be honest to figure it out. All you have to do is be honest with yourself. You know what those places are, whether you've ever said that or not. And in those places, those are the places that I'm guarded. Those are the places that I know I've got to put some discipline in place in these particular areas. This is a somewhat disheartening aspect of uh, temptation. It's the fact that we never outgrow it. Right? We, we never outgrow temptation. Now, hopefully we mature as people. Hopefully we mature emotionally. And certainly, hopefully, we mature spiritually and, and we're stronger in these battles and we figure some things out about ourselves. We figure some things out about what God's doing in our life. But the reality is, as long as we're on this planet, as long as we're alive in these bodies, temptation is going to be there. It's going to be lurking, waiting for an opportune moment. In our life. A few weeks ago, I mentioned the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, uh, as adults, they bring God an offering. God is pleased with Abel's offering, he's displeased with Cain's offering. Cain is furious at what has happened. And in this in between stage between feeling a very volatile emotion and acting on that emotion, God has a conversation with him. This is Genesis chapter 4, verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, <clears throat> but you must rule over it. What an ominous sentence. Sin is crouching at the door. It's there. It's waiting. It's waiting for the right moment. It's waiting for you to be in the right circumstances. It's, it's wait, waiting for the right emotional state. It's waiting for you to be really tired. It's waiting for you to think that it couldn't happen. Sin is crouching 
at the door. It's lurking. And not just any sin. Not just sin in general. The one that you struggle with is at your door. For Cain, it was anger. The sin of anger was at the door for Cain. What you struggle with is waiting. What I struggle with is waiting for me. We get a really clear picture of how temptation often works in our lives from the very first temptation. Like the story of Cain and Abel is told in Genesis 4. The story of the very first sin and temptation is found in Genesis 3. It's Adam and Eve. They're in the garden. You're, you're familiar with the story uh, up to this point. Uh, the whole story of creation has been about beauty and growth and flourishing and new life and good things that are happening. And then there is this moment. God has placed them in the garden. He's asked them to tend the garden, to oversee the garden, to, to work the garden. And then he gives them one rule, one command to obey. It's funny, when you read the Old Testament, you find out that it's never about how many rules there are. Like, we like to complain about a lot of rules. When you read the Old Testament, it's never about how many rules there are. By, by the end of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, there are hundreds of commands. There are hundreds of rules. God's given them hundreds of specific laws, and they break all of them. In the Ten Commandments, he gives them ten. Just these ten. Let's start with ten, and they break all of them. Genesis chapter 3, God gives them one, and they break the one. It's never about the number of rules, how many rules or how few rules. It's about the condition of our heart. We have this heart that every once in a while, sometimes more than that in some of us, has this rebellious nature. You know, I don't want to live in the parameters. I don't want to live in the guidelines. I don't want to, I don't want to obey the rules. I want to do things my way. This is what's getting ready to happen in Genesis chapter 3. This is verse 1. Now, the, servant, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? We talked last week about how temptation comes through a lot of different avenues. We mentioned the devil. Genesis 3 is strictly the devil, but always, as we said last week... <clears throat> The ultimate culprit is my heart, my own desires. James calls them our own evil desires. That's what gives in to temptation. That's what temptation preys upon. Here's how temptation happens in uh, Genesis chapter 1. This is the sequence of attack from the enemy. First of all, the devil questions what God said. Did God really say? Are you sure you got that right? Are you sure there hasn't been something lost in translation? Are, are you convinced that what God said still applies? Maybe it doesn't apply anymore. Maybe that wasn't for you. Did God really say? We, we, we live in a culture, just like every culture before us. We live in a culture of, did God really say? Right? We, we get that message a lot. Are you sure that's what the Bible says? We get messages like, well, I can't believe in a God who would, and then we kind of insert whatever we want at that point. I don't think God would have said that was wrong. I don't think God would have. Did God really? Does that still apply? We live in that world. This, this is one of his easiest attacks against us. Did God really say that? Did God really 
say that second step. Not only does he question what God says, the devil exaggerates what God says. This is the question. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, God didn't say that. He didn't say you couldn't eat from any tree in the garden. He said you can't eat from that tree. One tree. This is the one tree. The enemy, our minds, perhaps people who are around often do that. To make God seem more oppressive to us. To, to make it sound like God has all of these rules. How can you possibly keep all of these rules? Did God really say you couldn't eat from any of the trees? No, he didn't say that. He exaggerates the words of God. Verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Eve initially does wonderfully, kind of setting the record straight. Now, God didn't forbid us to eat from any of the trees. He just said we shouldn't eat from this tree, but then she adds, and we can't touch it. Which, from all of the instructions we have up to this point, God never said they couldn't touch it. God just said, don't eat of it. Now, it might be a good idea not to touch it so that you wouldn't eat it. I mean, that makes sense. Don't touch it, then you won't eat it. But if you know how the story goes, that didn't work out either. Like, if she thought not touching it was going to keep her from eating it, that didn't work because she ate it. Now, just a, a little bit of a side thing here that probably needs a whole lot more time. But I want to venture down this for just a, a minute, and then we'll come back. We sometimes think we're helping God by imposing greater restrictions, but we might be harming others in the process. That's a big, huge topic that we can't cover just today. But I felt like it needs to go here because here we have, here we have the devil and then uh, we have Eve both expanding the rules that God gave. Sometimes we think, well, this is the rule, so I need to make a couple of rules before that to keep me from that rule. Which, on the one hand, may be perfect for you. It may be exactly what you need to do. Like in an area of weakness, the rule may not be enough. In order for me to be disciplined and not break the rule, I may need to set some personal boundaries well before that rule. The problem is, when I set a personal boundary and think it should be applied to all of you. The problem is, when, when I have a best practice, like this is a best practice for me. It keeps me out of trouble. I know this is a problem for me. And so here's some best practice. Here's five things I don't do. The problem is those five things aren't what God said. They're what you decided. Again, maybe wise, maybe perfect. But in church, in Christian world, we do this all the time. God said this, I don't think you should even do this. Well, that's wonderful, but I'm not you, and God didn't tell me that. And usually when we do that, we think we're helping other people out. I'm trying to help you not break that rule by giving you five other rules. Or we sort of think we're helping God out, right? I mean, there's a part of us sometimes that thinks, 
I just think God didn't think of this. If God had thought of this, he would have put it in there. So I'm going to help God and like write an extra explanatory rule under the rule that he gave because he left this part out. When God has said clearly what God means, and often as we add layers to what God said, we hurt ourselves and we hurt people around us. You're familiar with the religious leaders. Jesus comes along thousands of years after this happens. And the system of religion, God had given rules, God had given very clear commands. And then the system of religion stepped in and said, we're going to add hundreds more commands to help you obey God's commands. In order to obey these commands, we're going to give you these commands that will help you obey these commands. So really, they were applications. You know how, do you want to know how to uh, honor the Sabbath? Here's 50 things you can't do. And God didn't say any of those 50 things. right? And so Jesus is constantly having this tension with the religious leaders because the bigger problem was they were giving so much attention to the rules that God didn't give, they weren't actually obeying the rules he did give. And this is one of his ongoing conversations with them. Is, Look, you pay so much attention to this, but your heart's not right, and that's what I'm concerned about. You pay so much attention to this, but you don't care for the poor, which is what I'm concerned about. In religious world, we often do that. We add layers and layers, and you shouldn't do this. And I think it's a best practice not to do this. It may be a best practice for you. That's not the same as God said this. And what we don't realize, maybe what we're coming to realize more and more in multiple different areas is that as we have done that we have burdened people with our preferences and our thinking instead of leading them into thinking what God thinks we have we have no shortage of people who have expressed the emotional struggles of coming out from under legalistic type of religious experiences where they felt like they could never measure up and they could never be enough and God could never love them as a direct result of us exaggerating the commands that God has given. Where God has been clear, we should be clear. Where God calls us to obedience, we should obey, and we should encourage one another to obey. Where additional disciplines help you, you should implement those, but you and I should see the distinction between what God clearly says and how we individually live out what God clearly said. Verse 4. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The devil questions God's word. The devil exaggerates God's word. And then the devil misrepresented the consequences of the act that he was trying to draw her into. He misrepresents the consequences. Did God say this was be, would be bad? This, is, this won't be so bad. 
Did, did God say that there would be brokenness? There won't be brokenness. This is actually a good thing. You, you will actually experience something wonderful on the other side of this decision. This is one of his favorite tactics. Did God say this would be painful? Did God say this was wrong? Did God say this would hurt? Did God say this would destroy relationships? No. He misrepresents the consequences. He convinces us that this decision we are about to make won't end badly, and it worked. In Genesis chapter 3, it worked, and it worked sometimes with us. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Interesting descriptions. It was good. It was pleasing. It was desirable. Why do these tricks work when the enemy tempts us? Why, why do they work? Because it's something we want. It's something we want. It was good. It was pleasing. It was desirable. It was not grapefruit, right? It was good. She wanted it. How could she be convinced that the consequences wouldn't be what God said they would be? Because she wanted it. Adam wanted it. It was good. It was pleasing. It was desirable. This is a part of that, that wiring that you have that's different from the wiring that I have towards temptation, towards weakness. We look at it and we don't see bad. We don't see consequence, at least not in the moment. We see something that's good. We see something that's pleasing. We see something that's desirable. Our heart wants it. No one has ever given into temptation because they thought it would be a disaster. Nobody. There was some aspect that was good, that was pleasing, that was desirable. If you think you're always going to recognize temptation because there's going to be warning signs and it's going to look terrible and you're going to know danger, danger. No, you know how it's going to look? It's going to look good. It's going to look pleasing. It's going to look desirable. This is how temptation comes. Continuing, she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. It's over. It was good. It was pleasing. It was desirable. We gave in, and then they knew. Then they knew. For them, it was immediate. The Bible says their eyes were open. We know what we did. You know, you've, you've had that feeling. Don't look at me like you haven't. Like, if you're over 15, right, you, you know you've had that moment where your eyes were opened and you went, oh, how could I? Why did I? How could I do that again? How could I do that again? There, there was this moment of awakening that I have been fooling myself. It's not always as immediate as Eve's was, right? It's not always the act and then the awakening. Sometimes it's weeks, 
Sometimes it's, sometimes it's years in people's lives that they just keep convincing themselves. They keep buying into the, this is good, this is pleasing, this is desirable. It's all going to work out. There won't be bad consequences. And over time, eventually, somewhere in their heart, whether they admit it to anybody else or not, there is the moment where they go, I can't believe it. For the first time in a story that has been about beauty, that, that, that has been about flourishing, that has been about growth and goodness and relationship. For the very first time, shame enters into the story. There had never been shame in the earth until this moment. And that's what they, feel, that's what they felt. Their eyes were open. Shame settled in. There had never been hiding before because there had been nothing to hide. Everything had been right and good and growing and flourishing and beautiful and gift from the goodness of God. There had never been reason to hide anything until this moment. This, this is what sin does to us. This is what temptation leads to. It leads to shame. It leads to hiding. It leads to covering up. It leads to withdrawing into ourselves. And here's one of the tragedies of the story. God had given them plenty of apples. I mean, if we just follow along the telling of the story, God had surrounded them with everything they needed to be fully alive and whole and experience what is good and pleasing and delicious. God had provided all of that. And they decided in their heart, there must be something even better behind God's no. I see everything that I have. I see everything that I have. But there must be something a little bit better behind God's no. How often does this happen in people's lives? There is goodness in their life. There is relationship in their life. And then something convinced convinces them there must be something better behind the no and I want to find out what it is here's what temptation does to us temptation entices us to get something that God made good in the wrong way or at the wrong time the story is not about the apple it's about the fact that God had provided for them God had given to them and they decided that's not enough. I want it now. No, I want this. I want it on my terms. I want it my way. And this was their moment of awareness. That they had broken relationship with God. That there was now, now, uh, there, there was now uh, a break in the beautiful story that God was trying to tell. Now, the other side of this story that we have to tell, and it's the side of a story that doesn't culminate for thousands of years after this moment, is that God, who gives us commands to, to keep us from living in shame, God who desires our obedience, God who gives us the Holy Spirit that empowers us to resist temptation, that same God who calls us into holiness also sees our weakness, also knows our struggle, 
also refuses to turn away from us even when we give into temptation. Like as soon as Adam and Eve had sinned, God immediately reveals that he's going to fix it at his cost. In a way that only he could fix it, God had already put in, in place a plan that will redeem even this moment and all of the moments that were to come in their lives and in your life. That his grace would still be available when we fail to resist. The writer of Hebrews has this beautiful description of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4. He writes, For we do not have a high priest, and that's often how he referenced Jesus, Jesus the ultimate high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus knows us. You know what Jesus' posture is towards us when we're tempted, according to Hebrews? You know what his posture towards us is when we give in to temptation and fail? According to Hebrews, his posture is empathy, which is rarely how I tend to see him in my moments of weakness. I tend to see him as angry or disappointed. The writer of Hebrews says, his posture towards you when you fail is empathy. He knows your weakness. He knows what temptation is like because we're told he experienced it at all. Every temptation that you could face, somehow Jesus understands that. He faced it. He felt it. He knows the weight of it. He knows the strength of it. He knows the weakness of your heart. And when you and I are tempted, even though God has told us again and again what he wants for us, even though God has been very clear in his word how we are to live, when you and I fail, Jesus' posture towards us is still empathy. So that, he says, we can come into the presence of God even after failure, even after temptation. We can come into the presence of God with confidence that there is mercy and grace. Like This is the both ends of the gospel. The both ends of the message of Jesus that he calls us to obedience and he calls us to holiness and he empowers us through the Holy Spirit to live out holiness in this world. And when we fail, his grace and mercy is available. His empathy pours out to us that we would come back, that we would start over. See, I think that's part of the realization for Adam and Eve. There was the realization that Things can never go back to the way they were. And they couldn't. They couldn't go back to the way they were from that moment. Maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you made a decision. Maybe, maybe there was an error in judgment. Maybe there was just an unwise moment in your life. And you knew when it was over, we can never unwind this tape. We can never go back. It won't ever be what it was. But in Christ... 
your relationship to him can go right back because his grace and his mercy is sufficient for that for you for any sin you may commit for any temptation you may face this is the God that we serve a God of grace and mercy God I pray you would put deep in our hearts a desire to walk with you to live for you not, not out of some robotic, legalistic, religious ritual mentality, keep all the rules, do all the right things. Because we love you, because we know you love us, because we know you desire our best, give us such a desire to live holy lives, to walk in righteousness, to, to be the expression of the image of Christ in this world. But remind us always that when we fail, there is grace and mercy. We don't have to come in the side door. We don't have to slip in the back. We can walk boldly into the presence of God because of Jesus and his mercy for us, his grace towards us, his healing in us. We are undeserving of that level of grace, and yet you give it. You give it freely. Help us to live in it. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.